Good morning. Welcome back to Mobile Communications. Uh, over the last two, three lectures, I showed you a little bit about the evolutionary path of GSM, UMTS, and today we will take a quick look into LTE, long-term evolution, uh, LTE, LTE advanced. So you should have understood that actually you develop a system based, in this case, on the classical digital network, ISDN. You place some mobility around it. You have GSM. You place the packet switch network on it. You have GPRS. <coughs> you enhance the modulation scheme. We will come to uh, Edge eGPRS. And then you change the radio access network. You introduce CDMA. And that was basically the very beginning of UMTS some years ago, uh, where we thought of okay, it would be nice to have classical circuit switch voice, circuit switch voice as you know it, uh, GSM, and many other typically packet switched services like what uh, at that time was called high multimedia, so typically two megabit per second packet switch for, well, walking, speed, pedestrians, maximum it says here six kilometers an hour. There were some ideas of bidirectional video telephony, uh, sometimes some of the services circuit switched, some packet switched. That was in the very beginning. Today, typically, you still have the circuit switched voice, but all the other uh, services are implemented using packet switching. And typically, it's all packet switching. So if you think of, <coughs> for example, if you use uh, video conferencing, or if you use voice over IP, video is this video over IP, you typically use packet switching, typically packet switching. And the underlying network, in this example, UMTS, is basically a bit pipe. It forwards the packets, that's all. There were also in the very beginning years around virtual home environments, if you want to look it up, uh, these are the, the acronyms, uh, VHE, etc. So 2000 and some years UMTS started or the third generation network started. And it was in the beginning, as I told you, Nokia and Ericsson thought as a replacement for the very crowded second generation network, the PDC network. For example, it started in Japan as former freedom of mobile multimedia access. And it's similar to UMTS. It's also wideband CDMA system. Uh, and as you can see, it started very colorful, and uh, one of the uh, major applications there is sending pictures, transmitting pictures at the very beginning, horoscopes, online banking, etc. So Japan started very early, but also alternative networks for this, uh, in this example, Australia, a third generation network based on, as you see here, it's CDMA 2000 network. CDMA 2000. One excellent evolutionary data optimized, so there are several versions of this uh, using different bandwidth, offering different services. That's one of the first 3G networks and some of the very first devices, uh, typically clamshell devices, etc. In Europe, there was a first test on the Isle of Man. So UMTS started here, and you see one of the very first space stations. So they started on an island to test it to test interoperability, test the devices, test the equipment. 
Uh, and then there was a, also a showcase in Monaco, U, uh, UMTS in Monaco. So that was the Europe's first urban UMTS network. But as you still can see, it was a huge container plus an uh, antenna. And then soon in 2000, it also started uh, here in Europe. For example, Vodafone in Germany. You see the red spots scattered over Germany. This is where UMTS started, typically in the cities. <coughs> and today, you typically have coverage along all the highways, for example, uh, in the cities, but still not everywhere. In blue here in this example is shown the second generation coverage, GSM coverage. In light blue, there is, well, weak coverage, sometimes no coverage, for example, in Black Forest. Orange, did everything in orange. So you have UMTS coverage and second generation GSM coverage. And on some, some areas, you have no coverage at all. Okay. So, at the same time, UMTS was marketed, and as I told you already, industry held back new versions of GSM because of the competition. So, especially Edge was held back, enhanced data rates for global, it was GSM evolution, so enhanced data rates for global evolution. That's a system that uses now an 8 PSK for modulation, so phase shift keying instead of the Gaussian minimum shift keying, and you can reach up to 384 kilobit per second. So every time you see a little <coughs> E in your mobile phone, it's typically GPRS. So it's Edge, a new modulation scheme, put on top of the GPRS system. So there's still the old system involved, so you have coding schemes 1 to 4, as I already introduced them, with certain data rates, so 8.8 .8 up to 17.6 kilobit per second per time slot. Remember, GPRS uses one, two, three, or typically up to four time slots out of the eight GSM time slots. So for one time slot, 8.8 uh, 8 to 17.6 kilobit per second, and with new coding schemes and the new modulation 8PSK, you could go up to almost 60 kilobit per second per time slot. So, and then it depends on how many time slots uh, you can use, etc. You can go up to pretty nice data rates, which could have been uh, good competition for the early UMTS, not the UMTS of today. At the same time, EMS was introduced, uh, so that means chaining of SMS. So at that time, 2000, you could start writing SMS longer than 160 characters with EMS, uh, animated icons, ringtones, soon replaced by uh, MMS. Some providers simply skipped the EMS, used MMS directly. MMS is, was a system used for transmission of images, video clips, audio, never really took off. Yes, MMS is supported in mobile phones, but today you have all the messaging services and the classical email services and whatever chat, la 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 la, clients on your mobile phones. So you don't really need these special applications anymore. And the uh, uh, same happened to WAP. That was thought as a web replacement for smartphones. And you still see 
web pages, uh, especially f with the special format for mobile phones. Uh, so they use the web protocol and special formatting language. But today on the smartphones, you can use the normal web and the normal protocols, and they more or less work pretty well. So Edge is typically the system you use today if you talk about uh, second generation uh, uh, second generation data transmission. Okay, so uh, that was basically the well, minor evolution of GSM. And there, something similar happened to UMTS. So higher data rates were introduced as well here. So we have the high-speed downlink packet access, HSDPA. So uh, as I told you, the initial UMTS and UMTS today used a paired band. Paired band, symmetric, blink and downlink. Nice for voice, not really for the classical use of the internet. So uh, HSDPA offered initially up to 10 megabit per second for the downlink, later more than 20 megabit per second. HSDPA also introduced MIMO, MIMO antennas, not implemented on all the smartphones, but the standard introduced this, introduced different modulation scheme, and nice user data rates of, for example, up to 7.2 megabit per second. Something similar happened in the uplink. So for example, 1.45 megabit per second. This depends on the network operator. This depends on the current load of the cell. This depends on your mobile phone. So there's a standard, but well, it's the question of how is your operator supporting the standard, etc., etc. So uh, then we have, the evolution goes on. We have new releases, as I showed you on this table, release seven, release eight, release nine with even higher downlink rates. Uh, you see more than 100 megabit per second. Uplink rates more than 23 megabit per second. So HSPA evolution, HSPA plus. And every year, depending on the network operator, depending <coughs> on the mobile phones, you can use higher and higher data rates. There's a certain limit. Uh, typically, if there's a new standard like LTE, there will be some more evolutionary steps, but then uh, typically the story ends. <coughs> so HSPA plus is supported by most mobile phones, but it depends which release and what data rates, etc. So these are the enhancements in UNPS. But there's clearly an upper limit. CDMA today is not the newest technology, so and it needs a lot of energy, the coding, decoding, power control, etc. And uh, so over time, we had more powerful processors, so we could think of even more complex systems, but maybe a little bit more complex, but with higher data rates, maybe, well, saving some power. And uh, pretty soon after UMTS, Standardization started, or at least research started much earlier, but standardization also started for a new system, a new system offering even higher data rates, covering larger areas. Because with UMTS, you have the problem, you need those many base stations. Hmm. You need the tight power control. So we cannot really cover 
large regions with UMTS. How do you reach rural areas? How do you get the internet higher data rates uh, on in rural areas? Well, this is uh, a big problem. And also politicians said, well, we cannot always only support urban regions because in urban regions you already have high-speed DSL, fiber optics, and whatever there is. But in rural regions, we don't have this. So licensing, as you might remember, with UMTS said, uh, you have to cover a certain percentage of the population in the year 2003, 25%, 2005, 50%. But that means the cities. So a politician said, well, with the next licensing, we have to think of also the rural population. So on the countryside, somewhere. How are rates there? There's a new system called LTE, Long-Term Evolution, initiated 2004, see, some years ago, six, eight, nine, eight years ago, by NTD Docomo in Japan. And the idea was, how can we optimize the radio access? And you remember, the name was UTRA, Universal Tester Radio Access. And how can we optimize there? And how can we optimize the architecture, you see, still evolutionary path, long-term evolution. So it's not LTR, not long-term revolution or whatever. So it's evolutionary path. And the initial targets were downlink at 100 megabit per second, uplink 50 megabit per second. So nice higher data rates, but the a very nice thing is round trip times less than 10 milliseconds. With UMTS, GSM and all the systems, you have something like 100, 120 milliseconds, which is if you think of interactive applications. So you, you send data, it takes 100 milliseconds until it reaches the base station. It's not because the light is slow between your mobile phone and the base station. It's still roughly see the speed of light, but it takes some time for the forward error correction, for the processing. Because typically, you have to look into your data and you have to collect a little bit more data to process the redundant data, depending on the forward error correction scheme. So you have to look a little bit into the future to code the current data. So you have to collect data. But this introduces latency. With new schemes and different schemes, you can reduce the round trip time. So reduced round trip time, that was uh, one, of the uh, it's one of the nice features of LTE. So 2007, now five years ago, the new kind of evolved, enhanced new UTRA progress from the feasibility study. So that was the, uh, well, basic research. Can we do it at all? And then we had a approved technical specification. Technical specification is important. It says basically, okay, this is the way you should do it. These are the interfaces. These are the protocols. <laughs> Before that, you needed a prototype, so the feasibility study. Then 2008, it was stable for commercial implementation. And 2009, we had the first public LTE services in Stockholm and Oslo. So 2009, they started there. And 2010, it, uh, LTE started in Germany. LTE is not really the fourth generation. So there's still a little bit, little bit missing here in the, in the speed, in the downlink speed. So sometimes it's called 3.9 generation. So it does not fulfill all the requirements for the INT advanced 
standards. So IMT, you remember IMT 2000 led to the third generation, IMT advanced now should be the fourth generation. There's also already going on discussions about fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever generation. So that's the way uh, at least the next generation is handled. So in Berlin, it was May 2011, Berlin got the first LTE cell uh, with some coverage. Here it was, maybe you see this, uh, this circle here. So that's close to the Sony Central downtown. Uh, but LT uh, there is no real LTE coverage in Berlin up to now because of the requirements of the licensing. First, coverage in the countryside, then in the cities. So uh, I think that was Vodafone at that time. So key features. Uh, the idea was not to make the architecture even more complex, a kind of evolutionary path, more and more and more complexity. Uh, no, but to simplify the network architecture. So to simplify the architecture, well, that's an evolutionary path, so you cannot just kick out all the old equipment and introduce new equipment. So basically, the idea was to have a flat IP-based network replacing the packet switch core. So more IP optimized for something called the IP multimedia subsystem. So that's the keyword. And the basic idea was no more circuit switching. No more circuit switching. Well, uh, no more circuit switching. One of the consequences there is uh, basically No voice, no way voice based on circuit switching. So uh, yes, that's one of the problems. Uh, our typical voice calls are they are based on circuit switching. So if we kick out circuit switching, you cannot use the classical system for voice calls. The classical also involves mobile service switching center, handling billing information, all these things, suddenly everything is IP-based. You might think, yeah, then let's go to voice over IP. Yeah, sure, voice over IP works in LTE, but then how do you handle billing, charging for something, charging for minutes? This and that number of minutes for international calls. <laughs> if it's all voice over IP, you cannot because it's just a data stream, an IP stream. So suddenly, part of your business model breaks down because it's not anymore uh, a call setup phase where you can actually control the voice calls. So it's IP. It's all IP. Hmm. So uh, what do you do with LTE devices? So one solution is for voice calls, you fall back to classical GSM or UMTS. You just fall back. And the same happens to SMS. SMS is handled by the signal channel of GSM. Uh, it's all IP. So yes, you can use mes messaging, but where's the business model behind messaging? It's IP. Mm, no business model. So you cannot charge message. So if you use the iPhone today and you send the iMessage, hmm? 
no billing, no charging, nothing, because it's not an SMS. If you go to an SMS, you pay per SMS, for example, it depends on your contract, etc. but you have to pay per SMS. If you use a messaging service, no, it's in a flat rate, <coughs> it's all IP. So from a technical perspective, great, it's all IP, it's voice over IP, it's messaging over IP, video over IP. From a business model, you have to rethink it because if, if it's all flat and uh, you only book pure IP services, how do you make money? Uh, more money for international calls or for special numbers or whatever. How do you call special numbers? How do you call premium service if it's all IP? Not really solved. Not really. Yes, I mean, there are systems converting from voice over IP to calling special numbers, but how do you do charging for the special numbers? How do you avoid whatever spamming and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some causes of not having circuit switching anymore. Self-organization, that was one of the ideas of the network. I will show you the architecture soon. Um, what does it mean? If you kill an MSC, major part of the GSM network breaks down. Same for UMTS. No MSC, no network. Here the idea was maybe we could somehow self-organize a network by having connections between the base stations. I will show this in the architecture. Frequency reuse. Oh, frequency reuse. So we are back in a scheme with different frequencies. So frequency reuse, you don't need this for CDMA systems. LTE does not use code multiplex anymore. We are back in TDMA, FDMA. Not like GSM, a little bit more intelligent, but that's the idea. So soft frequency reuse, basically it's, uh, you have a certain amount of frequency bands available. And you can say, okay, we use frequencies, certain frequencies in closer to the center of the radio cell and some other frequencies with higher power in the outer parts of the cell. So we can reuse the frequencies because we don't have overlapping. So basically, if you have the, the antenna, you have an inner part of the cell, you know it's a bizarre shape, whatever thing, and you have an outer part of the cells, and you have to have overlapping, otherwise you drop out of the service. So there might be some overlapping. So you need overlapping to handle handover. And the idea there is, also have overlapping here, and then there's again an inner part. The idea is to reuse certain frequencies in the inner parts of the cell because they are not overlapping. And to use a different set, so a set F1 of frequencies here, and a set F2 here, F3 here, because they overlap here. And here you could again use F3 because there's no overlapping, etc. So to reuse parts of the frequencies because you have a weaker signal in the inner part of the cell and you can reuse these subbands of your frequency spectrum in all the cells. So that is uh, one of the ideas. This was meant by 
soft frequency reuse. Much higher data throughput, so you use multiple antennas, so MIMO technology, and a much higher flexibility. I will show you this when I come to the frequencies in terms of spectrum bandwidth data rates. Low RTT, that's good for interactive traffic, gaming, and sure, there are transition schemes from the classical wideband CDMA, HSPA, TDS CDMA, so that's the Chinese version, and also the mainly US, South Korean version, CDMA 2001X EVDO, which is the third generation standard of the 3GPP2. So with the 3GPP for the standardization of UMTS and the 3GPP2 for the CDMA 2000. And this is already a large step towards the 4G systems, the IMT Advanced. And if you go on the web page of the 3GPP, you can see again all the tables, figures, specifications, and you will see there's no separate standard family for LTE, but it's integrated into the GSM and UMTS specification the standard family. Okay, these were some key features of LTE. So, high flexibility. I mentioned high flexibility. What does it mean? Uh, yes, we cannot read the table, but what does it mean? This evolved universal terrestrial radio access, the EUTRA, is not fixed to a certain frequency, but there are operating bands between 700 and 2,700 megahertz. So here you have so-called operating bands. For example, operating band 18 uses as uplink 815 megahertz to 830 megahertz and as downlink 860 megahertz to 875 megahertz and uses frequency division duplex. There as well, operating band 37, for example, around 1900 megahertz using time division duplex. You see, uplink and downlink on the same frequencies because they use time division duplex. And here, uplink and downlink at different frequencies using frequency division duplex. And by the way, here at, as I showed you, these 800 something megahertz, these are the frequencies interfering with the old analog wireless microphones. So this is exactly the discussion going on. And these are also the frequencies used uh, from analog television. So they are free because we have full digital television. Terrestrial television is completely digital, no more analog television. So you can reuse the frequencies for LTE. But you see, LTE can be used on many, many different frequencies. So high flexibility in the operating bands. But also the channel bandwidth. We learned that UMTS uses a channel bandwidth of five megahertz. GSM, very small, 200 kilohertz. But here, you have channel bandwidth 1.4, 3, and up to 20 megahertz. If you have, for sure, you can go to higher data rates. 1.4, not that high data rates. You have TDD and FDD, many different modulation schemes from QPSK to 64QAM. The access scheme now is a FDMA scheme, different versions. So frequency division, multiple access, I will show you roughly how this works. And <coughs> today, the peak data rates are 300 megabit per second downlink, 75 megabit per second uplink, depending on user equipment. 
and cell radius, well, one kilometer up to 100 kilometers. So much higher, much higher flexibility. And so you have many different versions of this standard family, different frequencies, different modulation schemes. And well, uh, tough luck for iPad users. LTE, for example, implemented there is not the LTE we have here in Germany. So you cannot use the LTE in the iPad, for example, here. So it's not officially uh, an LTE device here in Germany. So you simply cannot use it. You can use it in other countries, but not here. So they simply have a modem that is not capable of the European version. So should have bought a different modem. Okay, so high flexibility in terms of frequencies, in terms of channels. And we are back to frame structures. We just skipped this in uh, UMTS. I said, well, in UMTS, the frame structure is there for synchronization only. Here in, L in LTE, we are back <coughs> with a radio frame of 10 milliseconds, a subframe of 1 millisecond. So very straightforward. 10 millisecond, 1 millisecond, 10 time slots for an uplink and 10 for a downlink. There's synchronization included in some of the so-called subframes. So we have the FTD mode and we have a TDD mode, and a TDD mode with a certain uplink time, a certain downlink time, <coughs> and you can switch the direction of a slot. So you have a downlink, then you have a certain guard period, so you need some time for the hardware to switch from receiving to sending, or vice versa, <coughs> uh, depending on which side you are. And then there's some random access scheme, etc., and then you have an uplink. So the standard allows for TDD and FTD schemes, which is quite nice. But does, again, not mean that all the devices are capable of handling all these uh, versions of the standard as the iPad shows. So we are back to <coughs> uh, frames again. So now, how do we use the channels and how do we uh, implement now actually transmitting such a radio frame? Now this is a little bit more complicated. And this is already the simplified version. We have different user equipments shown here in different colors. So we have user equipment one in this yellow, whatever color. User equipment two, some green, three in blue, four in gray. The basic idea is that the base station tells the user equipment when to send at what frequency. So we subdivide our channel into subchannels of 180 kilohertz, several of these subchannels, depending on the bandwidth of your channel. I showed you there are 1.4 up to 20 megahertz, depending on what you use for LTE. And as I showed you on the frame, <coughs> we subdivide time in one millisecond slots. And now the base station assigns the user equipment, your mobile phone, LTE mobile phone, assigns time slots at 
certain frequencies. So it tells the device, now in this time slot, the first time slot, you can use uh, Asus Equipment 1, 180 kilohertz there. The next time, well, there are also some others. You can use it only there, next time here and there, etc., etc. So you spread out the data a user equipment has to send in time and in frequency. So that's the uh, basic idea. Sure, as you can imagine, this is a little bit more complicated. This needs quite a lot of controlling and scheduling in the base station. So the base station knows the requirements that come in from, for example, the fixed network, data that goes to the devices. And then the base station can schedule. That's okay. Now I have a lot of data for user equipment one, for example, <coughs> or permanent ongoing connection. So I have to assign time slots some certain fre frequency always to UE1 and maybe some additional time slots. And then there's UE data for UE3, etc. So this could be a pattern on the downlink uh, sending data from the base station to uh, the devices. But also on the uplink, the devices can tell the base station, I have to send something, and then the base station can schedule the device to certain time slots and certain. <coughs> so uh, that is the that is the basic idea. So much higher flexibility, no more code multiplexing, but uh, that uh, now uh, fine-grained time and frequency division multiplexes. So uh, as you can imagine, yeah, the hardware has to handle this. As to handle this, now I can send on this frequency and that frequency. Uh, now I cannot send at all, etc., etc., etc. So that's the basic idea. But this shows you much, much higher flexibility. <coughs> and you don't need this fine power control you have in UMTS because again, now we have time slots which is nice, no interference. You stay within your time slot, on your frequency, everything is nice. So if you're interested in how do you generate the signals, how do you do this at all, how you use uh, OFDM and all these things, read this up in the standard. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated, but that's the basic idea of LTE. Okay, but as you can imagine, higher flexibility, definitely higher flexibility, and no more uh, decoding of incoming signals based on a code and spreading, despreading, and all these things. You don't need this. You can additionally apply many things, but that's the basic scheme. And also, the network, higher flexibility, but you already know majority of the parts. So we still have, that's the basic idea, we still have uh, the packet switch network. Oh, where's the circuit switch network? Gone. No more circuit switch network. We have a classical packet switch network, GPRS uh, network. So connection to uh, classical packet uh, network. We have a classical <coughs> internet operators and whatever. Here in the GPRS network, we have all the classical charging functions already implemented, but also 
if we uh, come now from the classical internet, we have some charging and policy functions. That's the PCRF, policy and charging rules functions. There are again interfaces you don't have to know, but that's the basic idea. Someone has to control the gateway. Otherwise, you know, someone maybe has to charge something. Maybe you, are, you have a maximum data rate. You have maximum uh, whatever uh, amount of data. <laughs> so we have a gateway actually to the outside world. Some interfaces, classical interfaces. Different names here, but well, doesn't matter. Then we have gateways internally, so basically routers that forward the packets also from the GPRS. So you see uh, it's simpler architecture because we dropped the circuit switch part. So all the packets are forwarded here from the GPRS part and also from whatever part in the internet. You forward the packets and then it's basically a router forwarding then the packets to the evolved node B. So no really new name there for the node B. Remember the story about node B. Now it's an evolved uh, node B. And uh, sure you have many signaling. Here you see these dotted lines. Signaling uh, packet switched connections to different entities for handling mobility. Someone still has to handle mobility in the network. So that's the MME4. So handling all the mobility, but everything is now packet switched. So there's no real soft handover of voice streams, etc., because there's no circuit switched voice anymore. So there's no reconstruction of different streams and multicasting different streams. It's packet switched. So that's uh, networks. So that's basically pretty much a simplification of the network. And yeah, there's some, some more like a home location register, home subscriber server. But there's something new, uh, something new, and that's the network between the, the E node Bs. You see here the X2 interface, the X2 interface in the so-called user and the control plane. So that's a connection between the E node Bs. So uh, you can have a kind of a meshed there. Uh, you could imagine uh, situations where you don't have a core anymore, but you could set up a mesh network. I haven't seen this in real life, but you could think of real new applications, what you could do with the uh, E-Node Bs. And then finally, you have the user equipment. So the E-Utron evolved. So as you see, uh, there's the Node B, but there's no more radio network controller, the RNCs. The RNCs are missing, <coughs> the MSCs are missing, no MSC, no RNC. So it should be uh, somewhat simpler compared to these uh, UMTS core. So that's the evolved packet core and the e -Utron. So that's the basic idea of, the, of LTE, make things simpler, simplified, pure packet switched core. But then today you have the problems of voice. Uh, well, may, uh, mainly it's a problem of the business model. 
uh, not a technical problem. Voice, SMS, uh, there are different uh, proposals how you can handle this. Okay, so that's basically the classical LTE. Uh, and the IMT set, the international, uh, the, well, the subdivision of the ITU, the National Mobile Telecommunications, IMT 2000, you remember, uh, the ITU said, well, for the IMT Advanced, maybe we can make it there with this common worldwide system. You remember with the 3G system, mm, it didn't really work, so we had this family with many members, etc., and the different standards, but the idea again was to have a high degree of commonality and functionality worldwide. Flexibility, cost efficient, should be, well, so different services should be compatible, also with the fixed networks. Uh, you should have a good interworking with other radio access systems like wireless LANs. Next chapter. So, high quality, user equipment suitable for worldwide, etc., 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 worldwide roaming, and the peak data rates, and this is why LTE today is not I am uh, fourth generation. The peak data rates should be one gigabit per second for low mobility and 100 megabit per second for high mobility. That's the goal. These are the peak data rates. So uh, that was the idea. Okay, with one gigabit per second for low speed, you can handle most of today's applications. There might be some 3D, high res, whatever things. Uh, that need even more than one gig per second, but one gig is quite okay if you think of 3D, uh, HD, movies, whatever. So, that's the idea. Advanced services and applications, one gigabit per second. See, they showed you uh, 100 megabit, but what's really offered to you as customer is typically much lower. So today, typically it's uh, upper limit of 50 megabit per second or 30 megabit per second, which is pretty okay. I mean, for wireless service, uh, wireless service over several kilometers, etc., etc., that's quite nice. So LTE Advanced, <coughs> that's the next in the line. LTE Advanced is one now of one of the candidates for IMT Advanced. You remember, you cannot simply say this is IMT Advanced, but you submit a candidate like it happened with EMTS. So LTE Advanced, exactly this worldwide functionality interworking, and now we have this, LTE Advanced has these peak data rates uh, that are requested for IMT Advanced, and 3GPP will contribute exactly this LTE Advanced. Uh, this is our uh, proposal. There are certain ideas of how you can increase coverage. For example, relay nodes, that so you have actually a base station somewhere, and closer to the edge of the cell, or if you have a kind of a valley, or if you are inside a building, etc., you have relay nodes relaying the data for you. That's one of the nice features there. There are different ways of how these relay nodes operate. And to achieve the high data rates, now LTE Advance also proposes a bandwidth of 100 megabit, uh, megahertz. So five times LTE with 20 megahertz. 
sure if you have a huge bandwidth, you can reach much easier higher data rates. And there are already systems with even higher data rates in the lab. You can go up to terabit per second and whatever, but it's always a question of can you actually uh, uh, design a bring the high data rates uh, should be cost efficient, etc., etc. So that's currently under development. LG Advanced devices will be available soon, also on the commercial market. LTE is available, so just wherever you uh, want to buy a mobile device, that there are typically today uh, typically as USB sticks, but uh, also integrated in some of the tablets, some of the mobile phones. So that's LTE. LTE Advanced maybe in some years from now. So that's basically all about the uh, mobile phone systems. So what should you know about the systems? Coming back to our slide about the development of the mobile telecommunication systems. So you should be able at least to explain the basic features of the here highlighted this printed in bold face the GSM, GPRS Edge, Future FTD, Wideband CDMA, so our UMTS system, and LTE. So that's actually the path through these systems. Should be able to explain the key features of the systems, the differences. The basic architecture to show this evolutionary path. Uh, you don't have to know the packet formats and timings and hierarchical frame structures, etc. But things like how to separate users. Hmm. All these, ah, here we are with the, these basic questions. You, you, now you should be able to answer the questions. How can we locate a user? So. How do we separate the users? Why can I use my phone somewhere abroad? What about security? What are the key components? So these basic questions, you must be able to answer them. Okay, wireless LAN system. So the wireless LAN systems, there's today there's really a plethora of different uh, systems. Well, what is the uh, common characteristics of these, what I simply call wireless LANs? Well, they are typically more in the local area. Sometimes even in a personal area, body area networks, personal area networks. There's no sharp distinction between a personal area network and a body area network and a local area network. So what is local? So wireless LANs, well, I would say one of the key characteristics is you can operate it. You don't have to ask someone because it's a license-free or a license-exempt band. So I will show you some of the key characteristics, explain you the basic idea behind <coughs> 802.11, that's our classical wireless LAN, show you some of the standards, but definitely not all of them, because if you uh, simply Oops, if you simply look at 
what's going on in a standard station in a different ah I can also put it here because otherwise that's in the recording. So uh, what's going on there? You see, just in the 802.11, and that's only one out of the old wireless line standard. There's uh, .15 is quite successful. There are many activities going on. As you see, there are different working groups, task groups, active task groups discussing. Uh, so how can we operate it on different frequencies? So uh, different whatever MAC layer to use the so-called TV white space. That's the task group AF. TV white space is if you have regions without analog TV transmission, so you could use the frequencies there. There are many more study groups and uh, there are inactive task groups. Why are they inactive? Not because they are lazy, but because sometimes they have completed their work. So they have completed their work and integrated their work in the standard, IEEE standard 802.11 from 1999, for example, the physical layout. Or task group uh, E. E is an amendment to the standard to improve and manage quality of service. Completed, now part of the standard. Published 2007. So, as I already told you in telematics, the numbering is very simple. You have a working group. It's the uh, dealing with networking, local area networks. is 802. There are many other groups in IEEE. So 802.3 is for Ethernet. .11 is for wireless LANs. And then you start with .11. And then the subgroup will be .11a, .11b, etc., etc. So... And they are now all integrated. For example, 11A is operating a, a wireless LAN at 5 gigahertz, <coughs> B at 2.4, but higher data rates, integrated in 99. So if we talk about, oh, this is a 802.11 ABG device, that means it's .11 and uses A, B, and G, higher data rates for 2.4 gigahertz, for example. And the newer ones, the newer devices, they use N, for example, and so on and so on. So you have many of these task groups. N is uh, more than 100 megabits per second. So for the standard. So 11N, integrated 2009, etc., etc., etc. So new standard S is quite interesting for us. Uh, it's self-configuring multi-hop. It's now an own standard. You see 802.11s 2011. But uh, this uh, and some of the standards, they st uh, stay on their own, and some will be integrated in the 802.11 sooner or later. So you see a lot is going on. And if you reach set, you start with AA, AB, AC, AD, etc. Then you start with BA, BB, etc. So enough space. Okay, that's the, uh, the basic idea there. So, and uh, sure, I cannot really go through all the standards. It's impossible, simply impossible. You can browse through the standards. You can look up the web page on IEEE. So uh, it's quite simple. So there you will find all the activities all the, even the, the time and date of all the 
telcos and all the discussion groups when they take place, etc. Okay, I will give you also a brief overview of Bluetooth. The, the base for this was the 802.15 uh, standards. Uh, a little bit about the other standards and some comparison. So, yes, it's confusing. So if we talk about wireless LAN, we typically talk about wireless LAN based on 802.11, harmonized by Wi-Fi, Wireless Fidelity Group, an industry organization that harmonizes these things. Well, the point, one point is uh, if you have a standard, if you follow a standard, but as you saw, there are so many substandards. Uh, following a standard does not mean that two devices can talk to each other. They both might follow a standard, but maybe different standards. So somehow you have to harmonize them. So the well-known <coughs> substandards, as I already mentioned, 11A. In Germany, we always have to use 11H together with 11A. There was B, high data rate 11G. And then we have many more, E for quality of service, N for higher data rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a whole family, as I showed you, in the wireless LAN. The same is true for wireless personal area networks. IEEE started 802, 802.15, .1. That was the initial base for Bluetooth. .2, harmonization of Bluetooth and wireless LAN. Dot three, dot four, low power, three higher data rates. Uh, dot six, wireless body area networks, etc. There's dot seven, so 802.15.7. And then there are even subgroups there, 3B and whatever, discussing different data rates, different carrier frequencies, whatever. So having a standard does not mean you have a commercially successful device. Only some of the standards are really used in the devices. There are also wireless distribution networks and you see always the industry consortium pushing this. Wi-Fi, Zigbee pushing the 15.4, Bluetooth, and here we have WiMAX, uh, wireless, so it's a metropolitan area network. It was a dot 16, broadband wireless access. There was mobility added with the uh, .16e for mobile devices. There was even a, an own group, the .20 group for mobile broadband wireless access. Uh, it's inactive. So if we think of mobile broadband wireless access, well, to be honest, we have LTE for this. And LTE is already rolled out. And so it's also really questionable if WiMAX will be ever a success. I remember that in Austria, uh, they sold some licenses uh, for carrier. They wanted to use WiMAX as a DSL replacement. So if you don't have the copper wires on the ground, you could use WiMAX uh, for internet access. And I think the operators gave the licenses back because there was no real business model. Sure, as soon as you approach a small village with WiMAX, uh, one of the big telcos, Germany, German Telecom will come, uh, put a wire on the ground and offer DSL. So uh, WiMAX, I doubt this will be a commercial success, at least here. So, uh, but 
you see, we have the standards. Okay, and these are just some examples. As you see, uh, there, there are some more wireless standards. Well, it depends. Uh, yes, uh, if, well, where's the business model behind the free? Uh, but, okay, uh, if you want to do this um, with WiMAX, you have to get a license because they typically, the WiMAX networks, they use licensed bands. So you have to ask the regulation authority for a license. And like in Austria, you can buy the licenses. So then if you want to offer something free and you have to buy the licenses, who? You have to have some money at least. Um, but if you want to make it completely free, you could use a wireless LAN because they operate on license-free frequencies. But I have to tell you, it is illegal. As soon as you cross the borders between uh, from one building to another one, if you cross the street and if you offer services in the license-free bands, it's simply illegal because these are wireless local area networks for your premises, for your private premises. If you offer a service, and that simply means you cross the street to another premise and you offer internet connectivity there, it's illegal. So that someone will directly come after you, but it's illegal. Uh, because the license-free bands are not license-free for offering services. They are for private use only, for your personal private use. But that's not law. It's uh, in the contract with the provider. Uh, no, it's the regulation of the frequencies. Really? It's, a, it's simply the regulation of the, in Germany, the Bundesnetzagentur. It says in the regulation, it says it's license-free for, I don't know the exact words, for private use, not offering whatever, any services. And as soon as you offer services, um, you have to get a license. There are even frequencies that are not license-free, like the 5 gigahertz band. They are not license-free. They are only license-exempt, and the regulation authorities uh, can take the license back if there's too much interference with radar, for example. So that's always the official regulation, and then, yes, we know um, what you can do with wireless LANs, how you can have a power amplifier and uh, covering larger distances. There's also the maximum output power is regulated, 100 milliwatts. We all know, yes, we can play with the firmware and we can go up to one watt, we can go up to 10 watts, we can use directed antennas, we can use the Pringles box and buy a, a, a build an antenna out of this, and uh, yes, and then cover distances of 60 kilometers. Yes, we can, and no one will come after you if there's no real interference out of this. So if you don't interfere, Typically, everyone says, well, it's 2.4 uh, gigahertz, then a microwave oven and Bluetooth and everything is operating on 2.4. Uh, but if someone detects you as an interferer with whatever service and you disturb this whatever service and there's some commercial damage you cause and someone can identify you, you might be in trouble because the law does not allow this. So it's, yeah, well, technically I know how to build antennas and how you build power amplifiers and whatever. So uh, yes, you can do this and typically no one will ask because 2.4 gigahertz, uh, you will not start uh, commercial services 
on these frequencies if you want to have a real reliable, robust, whatever service. Uh, for me, for example, at my home, I receive between 80 and 18 and 22, 22 I think was the last number of uh, wireless LANs. So 22, covering all the frequencies. So there are many, yes, and I could use some of them. So typically they are uh, uh, protected, encrypted, etc. But uh, there are also some of these free services, and we all know that they are available, etc., etc. Now that's always the difference between, well, the law and how you use some of the things. You can also speed on the highway. Uh, so, okay. So, but that's uh, roughly. So I, I will mainly talk about Wi-Fi, this family, and mainly talk a little bit about Bluetooth because uh, these are quite nice prototypes for different usage, a little bit different history. So I will not cover Zigbee in detail, so for uh, automation, home automation, and whatever there is. So there are many more standards. So characteristics, big advantages. Well, quite flexible. <coughs> no planning. So you can simply set up an ad hoc network. You cannot do this with UMTS or whatever LTE. You cannot just play some base stations. Uh, although there are Pico cells and all this available, uh, but with a wireless LAN, no problem. You come together, you set up a network, and that's it. We can also offer these networks without asking. Not big wiring difficulties, so that's important for historic buildings, for firewalls, real firewalls. Not computer science firewalls, real walls protecting one side of building from the other side of the building if something is burning. If you drill a hole through these real firewalls, you have to certify to make sure that the fire cannot go through the hole, etc. So these are real firewalls. Okay, wireless lands are more robust against disasters, earthquakes, sure, or uses pulling a plug. Disadvantage, lower data rates. You always have lower data rates on wireless networks compared to fiber optics or whatever. It's always a shared medium. So in wireless LANs, you have a shared medium. And yes, you might have a 11N, whatever network, but if you have 100 users in a lecture hall, so we have ABGN systems here, but uh, not in all the places, but in many places, that if you have many users, well, user rate, data rates will go down 10 megabit per second, 5 megabit per second, whatever. We have proprietary solutions with higher data rates. We have since many years 600 megabit per second systems, but proprietary solutions. And sure, you have many national restrictions and also international restrictions. And uh, the point is, um, with these devices, you want to work wherever you are on this planet. So you have to look what are the frequencies available everywhere. And this is different from country to country. Yes, you can work on 2.4 gigahertz, but you cannot use the same spectrum in the US you can use here in Europe. So we have certain channels available that are not available in the US and in Japan, it's again different. So, okay. So there are some disadvantages. What is the idea here for wireless LANs? For wireless LANs, it's sure, as I said, global operation, low power, no special permission. That's quite important. Sure, you have to make sure that the modem itself 
behaves according to some standard. And that's also the reason why you typically, with most of the modems, you cannot play with the basic parameters. There are some where you can adjust whatever you want, but typically you cannot adjust uh, the basic parameters of wireless networks because you could disturb all the others. Should be quite robust, so spontaneous cooperation should be enabled. Easy to use, very simple management. Ah, that was not true in the early days of wireless networks or Bluetooth or whatever, but today wireless networks, you just whatever log onto any network that is available and your system is checking, oh, can I log into this or that or whatever. Uh, that's quite nice. Oh, there should be some, at least some uh, security. Yes, no one should be able to read my data. Some privacy uh, user profiles. Um, hmm. Yes, so we here at the campus, we could collect perfect traces of you, no problem, because we know your MAC address, uh, we know the user accounts, we know exactly the base station you're logged on, we have a central system, so we know all the users on the campus, all the addresses uh, of all the 1,400 hotspots we have. So we could have a nice database, So, but at least there should be some privacy uh, when you use whatever network, some privacy. Uh, we'll come uh, back to this later on. There should be also safety, so low radiation. Well, the base station, you should be able to operate the base station close to your body without burning you, cooking you, or whatever. So this is not true for a GSM base station, for example. And full transparency concerning higher layer applications and protocols. Well, you don't change your TCP or your web browser if you go on a wireless LAN compared to a fixed LAN. It's transparent. So maybe <coughs> there's some location awareness if necessary, but not really implemented in all these systems. So how does it look like? So basically, we distinguish between two basic architectures. In wireless lands, we have infrastructure-based networks and ad hoc networks. Infrastructure networks, they always have a wired backbone and access points. So typically, with something like a switched ethernet backbone, and then some access points. Here it's a little bit different, so we have a little bit more stupid antennas. Uh, they are connected via cable to a center, and the center then does mm, the major part of this access point idea. Uh, that's quite important, so you cannot actually steal the access points here. They are of no use. You cannot use them at home. So this is not Ethernet to wireless LAN, that's a special thing to wireless LAN. Plus the access points actually monitor the spectrum to see if someone else operates a wireless network on the premises here. And then you can see if someone interferes with their own network, etc. and all these nice uh, features. But still, it's a so-called infrastructure network. Then we have ad hoc <coughs> networking. Well, for example, the very first uh, port PlayStation Portable from Sony. That was an ad hoc network uh, for gaming. <coughs> Important in the basic wireless LAN is that all the devices have to be in the same radio range. So you cannot do forwarding. 
of data. So this is not the basic uh, wireless LAN scenario. This is not a multi-hop network with forwarding. For this, you need new stuff. So that's the basic setting. In terms of 802.11, we have special names for this. The access point is still an access point. The coverage of the access point is called the basic service set, the BSS. And the BSS is defined as a group of stations using the same radio frequency. So as we will see, we operate a wireless LAN of different channels. In Europe, typically channel 1 to 13. Internationally, you cannot use 13 and 12, etc. Uh, but still, also in Europe, you cannot use, or you can, but it's not a good idea to use channel 1 and 2 because they are overlapping. So you can use 1, 6, 11, for example, to have more or less non-overlapping channels. So you have a basic service set, your devices, and an access point. Device and an access point. The standard then says you have some distribution system, whatever this is, well, switched Ethernet, for example, and you have a portal, which actually is a bridge to whatever local area network. You can combine this, so you have an access point that talks 802.11 on one side and .3 on the other side. So actually acting as a bridge without a distribution system. That's just the standard. And the idea is, why having this distribution system? It says, well, this is some interconnection that forms a logical network, so-called extended basic service set. An extended basic, uh, and this extended, uh, extended service set, extended service set, ESS, actually covers several basic service sets, and they all belong together, and they are identified by a service set identifier, and that's the SSID. That's the SSID you see when you scan for wireless LANs. You see the SSIDs like Edurom here and whatever, Funklan and whatever there is, guest conference, etc., etc. Et These are the SSIDs you have. So there can be several SSIDs over one access point. That's no problem. So Edurom, by the way, Edurom is the best way of accessing the network here because if you have an Edurom account, you can log uh, into virtually any university in Europe and even uh, in some other countries uh, because you have already the right credentials, etc. So if you are wherever in Italy, you can use the wireless LAN of the university there. Okay, that's just a remark. So with the stations, with a basic service set, access points, portal distribution system. That's for the infrastructure. And if we go for an ad hoc network, so dot 11 also defines the ad hoc network. We have the independent basic service set, again with an identifier, and that's a crew station using the same radio frequency. So very limited, very simple, no gateway to other networks. That's a very basic structure. And that's quite simple. So typically at home you have these infrastructure uh, networks also here we use infrastructure networks. Okay, if you look at the standard and we will brief looks into some parts of the standard, you see, oh, this pretty <coughs> much fits into the picture we already used in telematics. So we have our physical layer, our Mac layer, uh, we have the IP, TCP, application layer, so that's for the infrastructure. And now all the changes is basically 
the Mac layer and the physical layer for the radio part. Now compare this to the protocol stack we had in GSM, we had in UMTS, maybe you remember with the signaling and the tunneling protocols and special adaptation layers, etc., etc. Much more complicated, different system, much higher complexity, the whole system. Here, it's for you, private use, much, much smaller uh, uh, area, typically part of a building or some rooms. So, standard is very simple, very simple to understand. So, if we look into the uh, standard, you see that we will have a different MAC scheme. That's quite <coughs> obvious. So, MAC will be different, especially the uh, access mechanisms, because now we are wireless. We have a shared medium. In fixed networks, it's boring. I mean, you have a start topology, a switch, start topology, there is no collision. You have full duplex. You have a wire between the switch and the host. There's no collision. There's even almost no congestion. The switches are fast enough. So it's congestion is a very rare situation. So you can simply send whenever you want. It's full duplex. Start topology, switch. So boring. Here, with a shared medium, that's more complicated. So we have to check the carrier. So we have functions for carrier sensing. We have to see, oh, different modulation. We have to select channels. We have to coordinate all this. So that's a little bit more complicated. The physical layer and uh, the uh, Mac layer. In dot 11, you have a PLCP sublayer, physical layer convergence protocol. Well, this is basically a layer that offers a carrier send signal to the MAC layer. Why do we have an extra layer here? Well, it depends on the real physical layer, the PMD, the physical medium dependent. On this sublayer, it depends how you actually generate the carrier send signal. So, uh, what does it mean? There's a free carrier. It depends on your, well, this real physical, uh, the, the PMT layer, because if you use, for example, there was an infrared standard, well, a free carrier is something different compared to a radio layer. Or if you use different frequencies, it might be different. If you use different uh, modulation schemes, it might be different. So this all started in the mid-90s, and so just for uh, yeah, historical reasons, you will find in the slides these legacy, uh, well, legacy physical layers it started with three versions and data rates of 1 to 2 megabit per second, so at 2.4 gigahertz. One infrared and two radio uh, versions using, you know, FHSS, you know, DSSS, wave sequence and frequency hopping spectrum. And quite successful at that time was a version of 82.11 that used direct sequence sped spectrum with a fixed chipping sequence, so-called barcode code, fixed chipping sequence, spreading by a factor of 11. And you see here already you have certain maximum radiated powers in the European Union, 100 milliwatts in the US, one watt. And I believe I remember when we had the very first devices 
uh, uh, that were for the PCMCIA slot, not available anymore on laptops, this huge slot, and these were devices from the US. So we already had the one watch uh, devices and you could do nice experiments, mid-90s. There was infrared, never a success. Okay, very first physical layer frame formats. I will not discuss the f uh, these legacy frame formats. So, okay, time, and I will discuss this in more detail because this is still more or less the same today. At that time, mid-90s, besides the physical layer, a Mac layer was standardized. And the Mac layer now is quite important because the Mac layer is responsible for the services you can really use out of the wireless system. So at that time, sensation also thought of maybe voice transmission, etc., with some guaranteed whatever services. So this is why the Mac standard itself is a little bit more complicated and what is actually needed. So mandatory was always a so-called asynchronous data service. Asynchronous best effort, supporting broadcast, multicast. This is what we use today for IP. IP is best effort, then why not using best offer there, so everything is best effort. There's an optional time service, not really ever used. And these traffic services, the one traffic service, they are based on different access methods. There's again a mandatory method, DSW, MAC, DCF, CSN, CA. Distributed foundation wireless medium access control with distributed coordination function, carrier sensing, multiple access with collision avoidance. So, okay, um, basically that's the I will explain. So that's a CSMA CA scheme, collision avoidance. There's no collision detection. It's not possible. Maybe you remember the chapter about medium access where I explained why we cannot use collision detection. So here we use the collision avoidance with a nice back off mechanism, minimum distance between packs and an acknowledgement scheme. So here we have an X scheme on layer two. In Ethernet, we don't have an X scheme. Uh, acknowledgement in classical fixed network, we have it on layer 4 with TCP, not on layer 3, not on layer 2, not on layer 1. So here we have an acknowledgement because we have much higher error rates. There's an optional scheme, distributed foundation wireless max, here the name comes from, using RTS-CTS. I explained this already. Request to send, clear to send. Avoiding the hidden terminal. Uh, problem and there was also a specification about the point coordination function. So uh, basically a polling scheme, optional, never used. So okay, so that's history. So how does it actually work? So we will first focus on this mandatory scheme. Well, basically, you define in dot uh, eleven priorities based on so-called interframe spaces. Interframe spaces are spaces between consecutive packets on the medium. And the initial standard specified this PIF SIFS. What does it mean? A short interframe space, some intermediate, it's called a PCF, point coordination function interframe space, not used. 
well, the PTA function, and diffs, distributed collation function in the frame state. And the priorities work as follows. If you have a certain type of packet to send, for example, a normal data packet, you have to wait at least for a time of diffs <coughs> before you can access the medium. So you check the medium, free, 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 but you have to wait for diffs, and then you're allowed to access the medium. If you have some more important packets, acknowledgement, etc., you wait only for SIFs, the short in the frame space. And that means you have a higher priority because you wait only for a shorter time. I will show you how this works. No hard guarantees, no hard priorities whatsoever. So how does it basically work? So if you want to access the medium, first you perform a carrier sensing. If the medium is free for at least the duration of this diffs, you simply access it. So that's only collision avoidance. So if two stations at the same time try to access the medium, they both wait for diffs, and then there's a collision. Okay, tough luck. So, but if you're successful, you transmit your data, then the medium is busy. If there's another station that tries to access the medium, this other station will detect busy medium and is not allowed to send. Then this station has to wait at least for a duration of diffs if this station wants to send a data packet. There might be several stations waiting here. They all want to send. They all sense the carrier as busy then they all have to wait. So now, if you allowed them to send directly after diffs, we cause a collision. Not a good idea. This is the reason why we have a certain contention phase here. A contention with possible collisions. We solve the contention. How? I will show you. And then the winner can transmit a packet. That's the idea. There still might be collisions. I will give you some of uh, the reasons why there still might be collisions. Okay, so that's, that's the very, very basic idea. So no hard guarantees, no hard time slots, no separate scrambling, whatever sequence. No, you just send the same frequency and you try to avoid collisions. And this clearly shows you this is not a system the big network operators wanted to use for guaranteed voice calls or things like this. Okay, but as you also know, if the data rate is high enough, you don't care for some of the collisions. So if you have a voice connection, if you Skype a voice over IP over wireless LAN, then you don't care. I mean, you need some kilobit per second. If then uh, there are some other uses, somehow you will come through with your uh, voice connection. So how does it work with the medium access? So basically, if a station wants to send, you sense, you sense the medium. I will explain it with this picture uh, in some more details, just the very basic ideas here. 
If the medium is free, as I explained, you can send. If it's busy, you have to wait. And the, the key, basically the key to success of the system is what you see here in pink. These are these slots. So you have certain slots, and I will explain the slots and the idea behind the slots here. This is a picture uh, you should have understood after the lecture. So basically, we have here five stations, and the orange arrows indicate when there's a send request from the higher layers, or maybe an IP packet waiting. So station three is the first, then there's station one, station five, station two, station four, whatever. They all want to send something. So what happens? In the very beginning, station three is first. Station three sends, sends the medium. So looks into the medium, the medium three, and waits for at least diffs, as you see. So it waits. Okay? So it senses and senses and senses. There's another request, but who cares? You send the medium, and after waiting time of diffs, station three simply accesses the medium. So medium is busy now. For a certain time, well, it depends on the packet size. There's a maximum packet size, as always, but you know this from IP already. So now station one senses the medium, and suddenly, oh, medium is busy. Same for station two, same for station five. So what do they do now? So medium is free again. Station one, two, and five, they all have to wait at least for diffs. Now they are not allowed to send immediately because this would cause a collision, typically at the access port. So not a good idea. By the way, the access point has to follow exactly the same procedure. There are no special rights or no special priorities of the access point. In basis, basic scheme, no special rights. So the access point also has to perform this, like all your devices. So now after station three stops sending, the medium is idle. One, two, five have to wait for diffs. And now they pick a random number out of a certain window. And the random number tells them how many time slots they have to wait before they can send. And this window is small initially and might grow and shrink. Why? I will explain. So basically, they pick a random number. And the random number is called the back-off time. So they have to wait for a certain back-off time. And now, all the stations have to wait at least for the back-off time. And in parallel, they sense the medium. Now the winner here is station 2, because station 2 has the smallest back-off time. Back-off time elapses. And now station 1 recognizes, oh, damn, medium busy. Station 5 recognizes, oh, medium busy. And they stop their back-off timer. And store the residual back-off time. So what remains the back-off time? Station one, uh, 2 was successful. So they all have to wait. Now station 4 wants to send something. Not allowed to send. 
So, medium is busy, medium will be free again, and what happens then? Something for the next lecture. Okay, thank you very much, and have a nice day.